We are looking at the story of Ruth, and I hope that you have read it this past week. Literally takes 15 minutes. You can do it this afternoon while the water is boiling for mac and cheese. I don't think it takes 15 minutes, but you can read it in a very short period of time, uh, the story of Ruth, and it's well worth reading again and again and again. I think it's one of the most relevant stories for our generation in our time right now, and hopefully we uncover that as we go through. I've really appreciated the conversation during footnotes. Uh, for those who want to gather, we gather at 9 a.m. in room one, and uh, I present some stuff, but I also learn things from the participants, and so we've been learning together about the story of Ruth. So as we start today, I want to give you five fast facts about Ruth. So buckle your seatbelts, hold on to your hats, keep your arms in the ride at all times. Uh, we're gonna go through five fast facts about Ruth. Number one, Ruth is a story set in darkness. That's very important. And the author tells us it's important because he starts by saying that uh, this happened during the time of the judges. And the time of the judges was not a pleasant time. It was not a good time. It's funny, when we think back on our, maybe our Sunday school days, if you went to Sunday school as a kid and you heard about Samson and you heard about Gideon and we celebrated them as heroes of the faith, they were awful men. I, just go back and read it. Don't read just that first part. Read the whole story. These were not good characters. Do not model your lives after these men. Uh, they did awful things. And just because God used them for his purposes does not mean that he endorsed their lives. So this is an interesting part that we deal with. The time of the judges is characterized by the very last verse in that book, which says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what was happening. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> does it feel like that sometimes right now? Everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes. And that was the time of the judges. And so there's this kind of dark backdrop to the story of Ruth. Why? Well, I think a dark backdrop helps us to see the shining lights. And the shining lights are the characters of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. They are people of integrity, people of deep love and faith, and people who seek mercy and justice in a time when everybody was looking out for themselves. And it reminds us that even when we find ourselves in such times, maybe even dark times, maybe even perplexing times, that we can still be people of integrity. In fact, we're called to mercy and justice and love exactly in those times. And that's what we find in the story. So that's number one, a story set in darkness. Number two, this is not a romance. I know it's really tempting to read it like that. And maybe we've been kind of uh, prompted to read the story of Ruth as a romance. It's really not. Uh, if there's a romantic part, it's super weird. And we'll get to that maybe in the next couple of sermons. Um, but there's, there's really, it's not romance. This isn't romance novels. And the reason I say that is because this is not a Cinderella story. Uh, Ruth and Naomi are not damsels in distress. We're not meant to pity them. We're meant to learn from them. And that's really important because I think the tendency when it comes to female lead characters, which are rare in the Bible, but sometimes when it comes to them, we throw them into stereotypes 
And by doing so, we diminish their voice and diminish the power that they have in speaking into our lives. And so don't fall into that trap. This is not a romance. However, it is about love, but it's about a special kind of love. It's about hesed. It's about this kind of loyal love that leads to profound acts of generosity and kindness. That's what's happening in the story. So number three, it is a story that's told from a female vantage point. And I don't want to undersell this. I want to kind of oversell this. This is super important as we go through this. We see it right in the first five verses of chapter one. All the male, male characters are cleared from the stage. They all die. It's so surprising because it starts out like your traditional story. There's a Limelech and he's married and he's, he's got two sons and everybody seems, you know, intact and happy family story. And then all the men die. They all die. And the household that once consisted of a woman and her three men has now become three childless widows and none of them are blood relatives. What an interesting drama is unfolding. There's a special story that's being told to us. And in a sense, Naomi is the character we're meant to view the story through. It's through her eyes. It's through her actions. It's through her feelings. It's through her faith that the story unfolds. Maybe to help us access the importance of that, we need to see Naomi not as the damsel in distress or the poor widow that we need to pity, but rather we'd need to see Naomi as the female counterpart to Job. Naomi is a female Job. And historically, I think we have sometimes wept with Job and criticized Naomi. And now we need to weep with Naomi. We need to weep with her in order to enter into the story. Okay, number four. Told you it was going to be a fast ride. The, the sermon isn't over after the end of point five, just to say I've got more stuff to say, so just hold on. Number four, this is a story of providence, and this is so important to get. God is rarely referenced. He's referenced. I mean, the characters talk about him. They mention God, but only a couple of times by the narrator and a couple of times or a few times by the people, but there's no shining light from heaven. There's no voice that comes down. There's no angel messengers. There's no tablets. There's nothing like this that's a direct uh, interaction between God and the characters in the story. What we see instead are ordinary people making human decisions. That feels like us. You and me, every day we do this. We're ordinary people making human decisions. And the beauty of Ruth is it peels back the curtain just enough to, to show us and we realize that God is actually working things behind the scenes together for our good. That's an important part of the story. The, the actions of Ruth and Naomi, the actions of Boaz, they didn't sit down and say, well, this is going to have profound effect for all eternity. We're going to have a whole group of people sitting here uh, thousands of years from now, and they're going to be talking about this story, and they're going to know Jesus, which is going to be one of our descendants. They had no idea. They had no idea. Naomi had no idea that when she started to head back to Judah, that all of this would unfold. They had no idea. They were making ordinary decisions as ordinary people. What we get to see behind the scenes is God's acts of providence in behind. One of the commentators says this, Taken as a whole, the story of Ruth 
is written to give us encouragement and hope that all the perplexing turns in our lives are going somewhere good. Isn't that encouraging? Because there's a lot of perplexing turns in our lives, especially it feels right now. He goes on to say, they do not lead off a cliff. In all the setbacks of our lives as believers, God is plotting for our joy. That should be encouragement, especially if we're in perplexing and difficult and troubling times. God is still plotting for our ultimate joy. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, right? Okay, number five. So it's a story set in darkness. It's not a romance. It's from a female vantage point. It's about providence. And then number five, it's a story all about names and naming. And once you get that, when you read Ruth, you'll really understand the power of what's happening here. There is the, the basic quest to restore the name of Elimelech. But there's this greater understanding that each name has a meaning. And each name is important. And each person in the story is important. And there's a rare occurrence that happens rarely in the Bible when two named women are having a conversation with one another, and it's not about a man. And we might laugh at that, but it's kind of rare. And so we see this rare occurrence in Ruth that gives us a glimpse, I think, into the heart of God. And as we learn from these women in the story. Well, we looked last week at Elimelech briefly. And does anybody remember what his name meant? His name means, my God is king. The only problem is, he didn't live up to his name. And he ended up doing what was right in his own eyes. And he led his family into a place that I think he probably shouldn't have gone. Who cares if there's food there? It was the wrong direction. But now Naomi is coming back. Naomi's name means pleasant. So if you have a Naomi in your family, I hope she lives up to her name. <laughs> Being pleasant. And that's how the story starts. Naomi is in a pleasant place. But Naomi, very quickly, as she loses her husband and her sons, she comes back to Judah, and when she comes back in, people look at her and say, is this Naomi? Are we sure it's her? And she says, don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara. Why? It means what? Bitter. Because I am bitter. Now, we have to be careful here. This isn't bitter old lady syndrome. I got to be careful where I look when I say that. This isn't, so there's, no, there's none of those in here, but we might know a few. So, but don't think of that as Naomi is, as having sort of bitter old lady syndrome. That's not what's going on. She had, I think, a legitimate reason to have a bad taste in her mouth. What was that reason? Well, in her words, the hand of God is against me. Or as it says in the New Living, I think, uh, God has raised his fist against me. And so I'm experiencing bitterness. We talked last week about three strikes against her. She lost her home. She lost her husband. She lost her hope. And she's in a place of feeling bitter. I don't know if anybody here is familiar with the stress index. Have you ever gone online and, and taken a quiz to tell you how stressed out you are? I just want to tell you, taking the quiz is stressful. And the result adds more stress to your life. Don't do it. But there's a stress index 
sometimes called a, a life change index. And it, it takes events in our lives and it assigns them a point value. And the idea is the higher the score, the more stressed out you are, right? And, and there's things at the top of that list, things like the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child or a financial collapse or a major move. And I just want to say, Naomi faced all of those at the same time. She lost her husband. She lost her children. She had major financial disaster, and then she had to move. So we should understand Naomi is in a place of feeling a little bit bitter. That's how she's feeling. And so what does she do? She laments. That's the good Bible word for this, and it's a practice that sometimes we forget. But Naomi laments. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. What do you make of that kind of theology? Is that the right response? Is Naomi in the right place? Shouldn't she, she just be happy, clapping all the time, happy all day long? Isn't that what we teach in church? You come here to be happy, people. And so clap and be happy, even though life is miserable. Well, I like Naomi's theology. I think it's not only real, but Job is very similar. Job expresses something very similar when he says, it would have been better if I had never been born. That was Job's bitterness. Uh, one commentator says, I would take Naomi's theology any day over the sentimental views of God, which dominate some churches and Christian publications. Naomi is unshaken and sure about at least three things. And you may agree or disagree about these, but this is what she's sure about. Number one, God exists. She believes God exists. She mentions God. Number two, God is sovereign, that God has the right to do as he pleases. And number three, according to her, God has afflicted her. That's what she's sure about. That's her experience. That's what she's feeling. That's why we get drawn into the story to view this through Naomi's eyes. I think Naomi would agree with the author, Carolyn Custis James, who said this, my mother used to tell me, things always look worse at night. Did anybody ever hear that from their mom or their dad? Things always look worse at night. For the most part, I believe her. But some of the troubles that keep me from sleeping look just as bad in the morning. You sometimes feel that? Some of the troubles that keep us from sleeping look just as bad in the morning. That's Naomi. That's where she's at. Maybe that's where you're at today. Our troubles don't go away in our sleep. They're there waiting for us as we wake up. So I love this fact of the biblical narrative. Uh, the Bible authors, the Bible writers, they never try to kind of clean things up to make God look good. Uh, they, they, they live in that sense, and they invite us into that sense of trouble and even lament and even sometimes conflict with God. And so faithful believers are free to express their complaints, their frustrations, and even their doubts to God. And it seems to be something that is even celebrated and understood. We see it all through the Psalms. We see it in Lamentations. We see it here with Naomi. And so here's the message. Suffering doesn't have to cause us to doubt God's existence, but it does force us to admit that there's a lot about God that we don't understand, that we just don't understand. Carolyn Custis James again says this, Faith may want answers, 
but somehow it is able to survive without them. You feel that sometimes? I would love to know why. I'm sure Job wanted to know why. God never told him. And it's a good thing that God never told Job why. Do you know the story of Job? God would have to say to Job, I got to be honest with you, Job. Uh, there was this incident and there's this accuser that came and the accuser basically said, I bet you if you took all the good things away from Job, he'd curse you. And uh, I said, well, have at it. <laughs> and Job would go, what? That's terrible. So sometimes and often we don't know why. Faith may want answers, but somehow it's able to survive without them. So here really is my point. Naomi's expression of bitterness does not diminish her character or her faith. However, her trauma causes her to retreat into herself and to shut down. Did you catch that in the passage as we read through it? Naomi, it, she just wants to be left alone. She just wants to journey on her own. She, she doesn't want Ruth and Orpah to be part of this, whatever she's about to face next. I mean, she's concerned that they go back and, and that they don't, they don't come with her. They, she intends to send both her daughters-in-law back, right? And, and even when, when Ruth says, no, I'm not going back. Uh, your people are going to be my people and your God's going to be my God. And may God strike me dead if anything other than death separates me and you. What an amazing statement. Ruth, in that sense, is a type of God. God saying, I love you with a loyalty that cannot be broken, right? But in her pain, Naomi can't see that expression of God's grace. God's grace is walking right beside Naomi, and yet she can't see it because she's in so much pain. Philip Yancey says this, pain narrows vision. Pain, the most private of sensations, it forces us to think of ourselves and little else. That, that's not a, a condemnation if we're in pain today. That's the reality, though. That pain narrows our vision. It kind of makes us think of just ourselves for that period of time. Christine and I, when I was in seminary, we served a church in Richmond, B.C., and, uh, and we had a, a great season there of ministry and still in touch with a lot of people from that congregation. Um, but one day, Christy and I were standing outside in the parking lot um, of that church, and we were talking with some of our friends. And I happened to look up, and I saw a whole bunch of windows in the second floor. And I said to my friend, what? I didn't know we had a second floor in this church. Like, what are those windows? And he said, actually, it's an area up above that's about 6,000 square feet of space, and it's completely unfinished. I went, what? That's so crazy. How do you get to it? Well, he said, there's a little trap door that you can crawl through, but generally people go up there. But I have heard a rumor that there's a fully completed set of stairs somewhere in the building that's been walled over. I thought, well, that's cool. I'm going to find it. And so I went to myself and the senior pastor at the time, Tom May was his name. And uh, we together dug out all the old plans and we, we found where this hidden stairwell was. It was like an Indiana Jones moment. Well, not quite. But anyway, 
Tom and I got out some tools, a knife and a hammer and a few things. And it was crazy when you think about it because if this hadn't worked, we would have been in a whole lot of trouble. But anyway, we cut into the, it was a wall just like that over there. It looked like nothing. It was in the main foyer. And we cut where we thought we were supposed to cut. We pulled out the drywall. There was a complete set of stairs in behind the drywall and we walked upstairs to 6,000 square feet of space that had been unfinished for years. What happened? You wanna know what happened? Okay, and then people say, no, forget. <laughs> That's the end of the story. No, it's actually fascinating and, and sad at the same time. There was a gentleman who was really part of the building project, actually it was related to a former pastor of this congregation. And this gentleman was the go-getter. He was the fire behind the project. And they had a three-stage plan. They're going to do the worship center. And then they're going to do a Christian education wing. And then they're going to build a whole gymnasium. And, and uh, things got going really well. And the worship center was being completed. And in the middle of that, he got very sick. And he got so sick with cancer and a number of the people gathered around him, especially a lot of the ladies in the church. And really, let's be honest, men, it's the ladies that keep the churches going. <laughs> and so these believing ladies gathered around and prayed for him with faith that he would be healed. And he seemed to be healed. There was a turning around. There was, there was a time when he, he went into, I guess it was remission, but it seemed like healing at the time. And then all of a sudden, he died. And there was such a grief, such a loss, such a disappointment with God that in their pain, their vision narrowed and they walled up the stairs and did not continue with the project for all that time. And that's what happens. And we see this starting to happen in Naomi's life. Her vision begins to narrow. Maybe she was thinking, I'm just going to go home and, and die. Don't come with me. Don't encourage me. Don't try and be a friend to me. She can't even see God's grace around her. But at least she's moving in the right direction. She's moving toward Judah, the land of praise. She's moving toward Bethlehem, the house of bread. And that's where God is going to meet her. Well, the passage that we read ends with a glimmer of hope, doesn't it? The, the very last line says this, the barley harvest was just beginning. And we might just read that and say, okay, so it's springtime or whatever it is. But no, that's very important because the whole passage started, chapter one starts with a famine, but it ends with a promise. The barley harvest is coming. There's hope on the horizon. So here's my question for us today. What good harvest does God have on the horizon for you? Maybe you don't know it yet. Maybe you can't see it yet. Maybe you're still in that place of pain. Maybe you're still in that place of discomfort. Maybe you can't even receive God's grace and God's love. But I believe that God has a harvest on the horizon for all of us, for us as a congregation and for us as individual. Perhaps the best is yet to come. Let's pray together. Father, we say today that your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithful love toward us. Father, today there are many in this congregation and in our community around the world who are faced with crippling circumstances. 
circumstances that narrow our vision, that turn us inward, that cause us to, to even push away others who would want to comfort. Father, help us to receive your grace. Help us to hope again. Father, help us to believe that you have a harvest for us just on the horizon and help us to move in the right direction so that we might receive your blessing. Thank you for your servant, Naomi. Thank you for your servant, Ruth. Thank you that they teach us today about your care and your loyal love. In Jesus' name, amen.